two friends are returning from a trip that they were on to uh, Acapulco, Mexico. And uh, as they were out uh, participating in their favorite hobby, which was bungee jumping, they decided that one of the friends said, you know, I've got a great idea. And the other one said, what is it? I said, you know, when we were in Mexico, I noticed that there was no bungee jumping going on. And um, not only that, they never even heard of it, but I noticed that they love that, the cliff diving that they do in Acapulco. I think that we can find a niche there and set up a business and make some money. And the other guy goes, hey, you know what, I'm for it. So they go out and they buy all their stuff. They buy the elastic cords. They buy all the equipment that they need. They're going to take a tower down there and erect it. And they plan to set up this business so that it opens exactly in conjunction with Cinco de Mayo celebration. So they go down to Acapulco and they go and they pull the necessary permits and they begin to erect this tower right in the middle of town square. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of interest and excitement that's going on. And sure enough, they have the tower complete. The business is up and running the day that Cinco de Mayo is in full, full blast celebration. So the, the two guys climb the tower and as you can imagine, everyone's standing there looking at them, wondering what's going on. They get to the top of the tower and the one guy ties the bungee on and he takes a leap off and the crowd goes nuts as he jumps down and Sure enough, he comes back, and the plan was for the second guy then to take his jump, and he was going to grab the first guy, bring him in. Well, as he reaches for him, he misses him. And as he comes back up, he notices he has some scratches and bruises on his face, and he goes back down again a second time, and he comes back up, and he's even got more cuts and bruises, and he's bleeding, his mouth's bleeding. He goes and he reaches for him, he tries to get him, he misses him, and a third time he goes again. This time, this guy comes up just thrashed, and finally the guy's able to reach the cord, and he brings him, he drags him to the platform, and he says, What happened? He says, was the cord too long? The guy goes, no, the, the cord was fine. He says, well, I understand. What, what happened to you? He goes, I, I don't know. They were saying, saying something about, well, what, what's a pinata? <laughs> Great idea. How many here can relate to being a pinata? I mean, I, have you had days like that? You know, I, I, had, I have become convinced there have been times in my life when I look back on them that I, you know, I am certain that people were lining up waiting to take a whack at me. And I'm sure that you've had days like that too. The point is, is that I think all of us at one time or another can relate to the pinata principle. And it just seems like we're just getting beat up in every turn that we take. We can't figure out what's happening. We're getting whacked again. And we start to ask what would be the common questions at that point. And that's, you know, how in the world am I going to get out of this mess? Or we ask, what did I do to deserve it? Or the other question is, you know, is there anybody out there that can help bail me out? To deliver me from this nightmare that I find myself in the midst of today. Well, if you've ever experienced such moments, you'll be glad that you made the effort to be here today because in our continuing study of the book of Daniel, uh, we're going to take a look at something that um, Daniel and his friends, or particular at this particular time, his friends at least discovered, and that's this. No matter what the circumstances are in life, whether this thing works or doesn't work, oh yeah, this is that overhead that you've got to read like this. So, and we won't, Anyway, the, the, the point is this. God is more than able to deliver us from the uh, pinata moments in our life. And, uh, and that's what we need to look at. God is more than able to deliver us from those difficult times. So if you find yourself today in the midst of a difficult time, then also what we're going to take a look at is um, how God is more than able to deliver us. I'm getting a signal from the back. No, I'm not. Okay. We have... Uh, the, 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 where's Dave? Did you mention about the baptism? Okay, so there's sign-ups going around. 
So we got that covered. And you mentioned about the discipleship material. So you got that covered. See, this is just for the balcony people because I came in when they came in today. <laughs> okay, good. All right. So anyway, God's more than able to deliver us. Hey, as a reminder, the book of Daniel is a marvelous tribute to the grace of God. Uh, apart from revealing future historical events, as we've discovered, it also demonstrates God's faithfulness in advancing prepared believers. You know, people that are prepared as far as understanding what God's will is in their life and also prepared from a standpoint of understanding what the Bible teaches or in this case, when you're looking at Daniel and his friends, what the scriptures teach. So far, we found four men, four men who were prepared for all the circumstances that came their way in life and all the persecution that came their way because they had a good, clear understanding of what scripture taught. And that's important for us to realize if we're going to be delivered from the mess that we find ourselves in on a regular basis, we need to take a look at the fact that we need to be prepared for God to use the scripture that we have already inside of us, the knowledge that we have as far as God's will is concerned, so that we can move forward in life. These are men who did not compromise their principles. They stood fast and they they, uh, maintained their faith in God. They understood what he said. They understood what he taught. They had a clear understanding of that. And because they had doctrine in their soul, God was able to deliver them through the circumstances of life. What's fascinating is in simple terms, it came down to this. The men that we've seen so far live their lives from a biblical perspective. And that's important to understand. In fact, ask yourself the same question. How do you make decisions in life? What perspective do you use in order to come up with the decisions that we have to make on a daily basis? In simple terms, Daniel and his friends understood this. They understood the scripture, they believed what it said, and they lived accordingly. And it doesn't get any simpler than that. And because of that, in the midst of all the circumstances, in the midst of all the persecution, they had inner joy and they had peace knowing that what they were doing was right before God. And while their whole world could be against them, when they knew that God was for them, they had a complete peace about the direction that they were going. It's important that we recognize and understand that. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, were among the royal hostages that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon when uh, Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city in 606 B.C. And their knowledge and application of Scripture paid off handsomely as they were able to resist all the brainwashing techniques. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me back to the book of Daniel. They were able to, uh, to resist all the brainwashing techniques that were thrown at them to try to acclimate them or to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. They knew what the scripture had to say, and as a result, they resisted this technique to have them assimilate into this new culture. They weren't people that bought into when in Rome, do as the Romans, when in Babylon, do as the Babylonians, uh, you know, when in, uh, when at IBM, do as the IBMs or whatever, you know. They weren't getting sucked into what was going on around them. They had a clear understanding of where they were to stand in the midst of this type of pressure. And so as a result, God was able to deliver them and not only deliver them from the persecution and all the uh, temptations, but he was able to, even in captivity, promote these men to a position of leadership in the state department no less, of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's fascinating because as they were promoted and elevated to this level of leadership, we found in chapter 2 as we went through it, they were promoted just in time to be used by God to meet the next royal crisis that took place. And if you recall in our study of chapter 2, we saw that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And the dream addressed the question in his mind of what this world's coming to. The same question that many of us struggle with. What's the world coming to in general? And in particular, specifically, what is my world coming to? 
We're told in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar paced, in the, paced back and forth in the bedroom chamber of his home, of his, ca- of his cala- castle or palace. And as he was pacing back and forth, he had just conquered the world. He had everything the world had to offer, all the money that went with it, the fame, the fortune, everything that went with it. And guess what? He had no inner peace and he had no contentment in his life. He was troubled by what was going on. And he had a dream, and the dream was to tell of future events, and he didn't understand what the dream was all about. And God used Daniel and the gift that he had given Daniel to interpret dreams, to tell him what to expect in the future. And as we look at chapter 2, we saw that the dream was laid out, that Daniel was able through God's, uh, uh, through God's power to interpret the dream, to tell Nebuchadnezzar what he could anticipate and look forward to in the future. And as a result, it leads us to chapter 3, which we'll take a look at today. And basically, the bottom line in chapter 3 is this. We will discover a perfect picture of God's loving care and total provision for members of his family. What's fascinating as we look at this, regardless of the circumstances in life, no matter what you find yourself going through, that God cares for you and that God loves you and he loves me and he's more than adequately able to provide at that time of need. It's a, it's a reflection of the principle that we find in the book of Luke where it says, you know what, with man things, uh, things seem impossible. You may find yourself in a situation today and you go, this is just absolutely impossible. I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. I don't know how I'm going to even be able to deal with it. But you know what? The Bible reassures us of this. With man, it may look like it's impossible. But I'll tell you this, with God, all things are possible. God's able to do all things. And Nebuchadnezzar, as he sees this dream that was unfolded before him, we take a look at something here that's kind of fascinating. Everything that was told in the dream, he was in awe of this dream, the revelation of the dream, Daniel's ability to reveal it, to tell him what the dream was, and then the subsequent interpretation. But what's fascinating about all of it is he just laid all of that aside and he got hung up on one aspect of the dream, and we'll take a look at that in a second. But I want to give you some background for chapter 3 because it'll give us a better understanding of what's going on and the magnitude of what's happening in this particular episode as we look at it because it's something that is very concerning, uh, not only to them, as we'll look back on, but it's concerning to us and also to the future of humanity or mankind. And the issue is this. We need to be aware, as we look into chapter 3, of Satan's strategy, so to speak, to counterfeit that which God calls truth. And he counterfeits truth, and he counterfeits Christianity in one way. And you know what way that is? Through religion. Through religion. We need to recognize and understand something. The counterfeit for Christianity in the world today is organized religion. And let me clarify that for you because it's important as we look at what's going on in chapter 3. The Bible says basically this. Christianity is different from the world's religions in one specific way. The religions of the world try as they may to find a way to tell people to live their lives. And if they live their lives a certain way, and if they do good things, whatever they are and however they're defined, that somehow or another we will find approval with God. Christianity, on the other hand, says there are none righteous, no, not one. There's nothing good in any, any of us whatsoever. And the only way that you and I can find approval before a perfect and holy God is to believe on Jesus Christ, His substitutionary death on our behalf for our sin, and His resurrection from the dead, 
to proclaim that he has freed us and, and caused us to become alive spiritually and opened the doors of heaven so that any of us who believe in him and trust in him can now have access into the presence of God. The only way that God is ever going to be uh, to give you or I approval is ask us, have we believed and trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? The Bible says in Galatians 3.26, For we are now children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says this, For as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he has given the right or the privilege to be called a child of God to those who believe in his name. The Bible is very clear that you and I enter into a personal relationship with the God who has created us when we believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And in fact, at one point, Jesus said this, what is good? The only thing is good, the only good work of man is that you believe on him whom he, the Father, has sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's very important that we understand that Christianity is different than every other world religion and in that way and in that way alone and that way specifically. If you would do a comparison or a comparative study of world religions, what you will find is every one of them have some formula or some way that you can meet the approval of God or a God or gods. And we need to recognize that God is not pleased by our works, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. Why is that so important? It's important and it's critical that we understand throughout world history and even today and in the future, there will be an attempt to organize religion to lay aside those types of differences so that we can all just learn to get along. And we need to recognize and understand that we will never be able to get along with anything other than the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, we read that there is a counterfeit gospel that is preached by counterfeit ministers and counterfeit pastors, so to speak, who preach a counterfeit gospel. We are told that Timothy is warned by Paul of a counterfeit doctrine, which is really the demons, as a doctrine of demons coming from the pit of hell, that there's no truth to it whatsoever. There's a counterfeit communion table. There's a counterfeit righteousness that Jesus warned of, that you would live a good life. And in Matthew 19, he warns of living a good life instead of just putting our faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. We read of a counterfeit spirituality where we enter into a relationship with God and it's by grace we're saved and then we spend the rest of our life working out, so to speak, our salvation in some way trying to please God from the standpoint of maybe, you know, in case it's just not by faith alone that we're saved, uh, but there's got to be some more stuff that are added to it. We recognize there's a counterfeit modus uh, operandi, so to speak, and it's called hypocrisy, where the religious leaders looked clean on the outside and did all the things they were supposed to do, but their hearts were far from God. Many of us today find ourselves in that same position. We come to church, we read our Bibles, we do good things, because all of that externally, what we're trying to do is earn the pleasure or, or, or the approval of God. And our hearts are far from God, just like they were in his day, when Jesus said, you're dirty on the inside, but on the outside, you're whitewashed sepulchers, you're evil people, and your hearts are far from me. We live in a world that's like that, where people are trying to do things externally, and their hearts are far from God. 
We see that there's a counterfeit power and counterfeit gods as we went through our study of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, that there will be signs and wonders that the world will be amazed at, done by people who are empowered by none, none other than Satan himself from the pit of hell. And they'll do things to deceive people, to lead them away from the truth of the simplicity of the gospel, and that there is no way that we can be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved than Jesus Christ. It's important that we recognize and understand all of this because because of pride, Nebuchadnezzar, who was normally a great and wise king, couldn't handle the prosperity of prominence. He became uh, power mad. It's been said that for every 100 people that can handle adversity, there's only one that can handle prosperity. And I believe that's pretty accurate because even God himself warned Israel in Deuteronomy 8 that there would come a point in time where they would want to take all the credit for themselves of all the blessings that they have. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, What do you have that God hasn't given you? What ability do you have that God hasn't given you? What uh, talent do you have or gift that you have that God hasn't given you? We get all puffed up and we get prideful and we think somehow we have something to offer the rest of the world doesn't. And hey, look at me. Aren't I better than you? And God says, what do you have that I haven't given you? Nebuchadnezzar found himself in that situation where he was all puffed up and he was prideful. And he was prideful because of the dream that he had just received the interpretation of. And yet he did not understand the dream in its totality because he only focused on one point of it. And we're going to take a look at that. What's fascinating is this, even though the dream and the vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar told him that yes, he was the greatest of the world rulers, but there would be many that would come after him inferior to him. But the bottom line of all of the vision was this in chapter two, that there was coming a day when the kingdom of God would come from heaven, the stone, the rock of all ages, Jesus Christ would come to this earth and he would destroy all of the kingdoms of the world so that there'd be no more remembrance of any of them. No one will remember Babylon. No one will remember Greek, the Greeks. No one will remember the Medes and the Persians. No one will remember Rome and the revived Roman Empire that's yet to come. No one will remember any of that because the kingdom of God will smash all of it and it will all be just like chafe that's thrown up into the wind and blown away and there will be no remembrance. And that was the vision that he was given and that was the interpretation of the dream and yet all he camped on was one thing and that's this. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. He went, wow. And he didn't hear anything else after that. All I remembered was, hey, I'm the head of gold. Woohoo! Everyone else will be inferior to me. Woohoo! And he got all excited about it. And so what he tried to do, as we'll look in chapter 3, is he's going to try to camp on that one thought. And he's going to set up a kingdom that he hopes he will always be remembered. And he's going to, what we would look at today is he's going to create some form of internationalism. And let me show you what that is. Turn back to Genesis chapter 11. Then we'll be ready for Daniel chapter 3. Genesis chapter 11. Just to show you that, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new. And history will come full circle as we will see. But in Genesis chapter 11, we see exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do because it had already been done once before. In Genesis 11, we read the account and the condemnation of such internationalism, so to speak, when we read these words. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It's the only time in human history where everybody understood one another and they used the same language and the same words and they were able to communicate with one another. And it came about as they journeyed east, this is from Mount Ararat, as they went to repopulate the earth, they journeyed from Mount Ararat to repopulate the earth. As they journeyed from the east, they found in a plain of the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They set up ovens to be able to bake this material, which will come in handy as we go through Daniel 3. 
And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now, don't forget, what was God's command to them? That you go into all the world, be fruitful, multiply, and populate the earth. God's command to them was, go, be scattered, populate, and fill the earth. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stop right here. We're going to set up camp, and we're going to do what we want to do, and we will make a name for ourselves. So from the very beginning, it's always been this struggle between man and God. God says, do it his way. We say, no, we'll do it our way. And God gives us the freedom to choose. They chose to disobey God. And in their rebellion against God, they decided to set up camp. And they were going to set up camp. And the Lord came down to the sea, the city, and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. What's kind of fascinating about this is man is very capable. I think we all understand and realize that. You know, I don't know about you, but every time I get an airplane and I'm flying 35,000 feet off the ground and I'm getting something to eat and I'm looking around, walking, going up to the bathroom, grabbing a magazine, and I look out the window and go, whoo, this is pretty interesting. You know, and it's kind of fascinating what man's able to do. We send spaceships and satellites into space and it's fascinating when your pager goes out and you just take it for granted and you realize that, hey, you know, what's this all about? And then you got to look at all the different diagrams that's in the newspaper explain how you get that page. When somebody picks up the phone, dials it, it goes off a satellite that's so many miles out into space it comes back down and it hits you in the belt. Uh, it's just, a, you know, it's a fascinating, you know, it's really interesting. And uh, man is very capable. And what man is also capable of doing is being very evil and very wicked and being very disobedient to God. You know, the Bible says before the flood that every thought of man was continually evil. As they put their minds together in rebellion against God, everything they thought about was some way, somehow we're going to be able to topple, the, you know, we're going to be able to topple God and we're going to be able to take over. And we will make a name for ourselves. The first temptation was God said, Satan said to the woman, hey, you know what? God didn't really say not to eat that. In fact, okay, if he did say to eat that, the only reason he said not to eat that is because when you eat it, you'll become just like him. And then you can do what you want to do. And you don't have to listen to him. And he doesn't have to tell you what to do. And man said, ooh, I like that program. Man's saying that every day, don't you? When you struggle with God says what to do and you say, you know, I don't like that idea and I like that direction. I like my own program. I think I'll do what I want to do. I think I'll be in in control. And so God, understanding the heart of man, said, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Let's confuse it so they may not understand one another's speech. And it was God who confused language. And it was God that set up the languages of the world. And it was God that said, you know what, I need to confuse these people because the communication barrier will help to alleviate uh, the rapid spread of evil in the world. Isn't that fascinating? God in love said, I will confuse these people so that they do not do what ultimately sin nature would have them do. And that's rebel again against me. So the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth and stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because, you know, it's kind of interesting. We even say that today in English. You know, somebody babbling on. You know, you know when you ask your kids to explain something, they start babbling. Blah, 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 blah. You know, what, what? You know, and that's where it all came from. So, uh, therefore, it's called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from, the, from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Isn't that fascinating? What's interesting is, watch this. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. What we're going to see are five areas that we're going to examine in this particular passage that's fascinating as it relates to this whole idea of internationalism. Internationalism. Look at Daniel chapter 3. We'll start with verse 1. And we read this. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the perfects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps, the perfects, and governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whosoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. There's a couple of things that jump out as we go through this verse. And the first thing is, look at the erection of the uh, Nebuchadnezzar as he erects this particular image that we see. The image that we see, the effort, the effect of this revelation that he had in chapter 2 of the dream, we find the effect in his life by how he responds to the dream. And as I already mentioned, the only thing that really stood out in the dream was that Daniel told him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar just camped on that thought. Forget about the fact that he was going to be defeated by the Medes and the Persians at some point. Forget about the fact that they would even subsequently fall to the Greeks. Forget about the fact that even the Greeks will fall to the Romans. And that one day the revived Roman Empire in history will come back to life full swing again. Forget about all of that. And that one day all of mankind's empires will be destroyed by the coming of the kingdom of God. Forget all of that. The only thing he remembered was, I'm the head of gold. So he's thinking, hey, not only am I the head of gold, I might as well be the whole thing. And the dedication of this temple, I mean, of this image basically goes back to the revelation of the dream and all that he saw was that portion of it. So he said, hey, you know what? I am going to make an image of myself. And notice how big this thing is, too. This guy had no problem with his pride, did he? It is 60 cubits and 6 cubits. You know, it's fascinating, too, about Scripture, how accurate it is historically. You know, the Babylonians were the ones who used uh, multiplication, multiplication tables of sixes. The Greeks later would introduce tens, which we still use today. But in this particular culture, they used multiplication tables that were based on six. So the, 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 the image was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And a cubit, for those who don't know, is what they used to do is because they didn't have Stanley tape measures... Um, they used to use the distance from your elbow to, your, to the extension of your middle finger. And uh, what that was was basically about 18 inches. And so they used that. Can you imagine somebody going, hey, measure that for me, guys down. But, you know, they had all kind of time because they didn't have to watch anything on TV. So it wasn't that big a deal. But the dedication of this image was, here it was, it was 60 cubits. I mean, can you imagine it's 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits or it comes out to roughly about 90 feet tall by nine feet wide. What else is fascinating is this. It was an image of gold. Now I did some calculations on this because little things like that are interesting to me. 
but it comes out to 3,645 cubic feet of gold, or 4,400,000 mil, 4, uh, pounds, or 70,400,000 ounces. Now, the only thing I didn't under, that I didn't dig into was, I don't even know what ounce of gold sells for today. So I just figured at $50 an ounce, which is probably low, right? Okay, so what is it? $300 an ounce? Wow. All right, let me figure this out then. Okay. At $50 an ounce, it came to $3,520,000,000. Okay. At uh, $300 an ounce, it would be six times that. It would be $18 billion. And, well, then i got to do the millions part, so it actually jacks up the billion. So, but it was a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of money. Now, can you imagine? And, and not only that, but, but the point of all of this is this. This guy had a tremendous problem with pride. It also obviously reveals the wealth of Babylon, but what's fascinating about it is this. The image was the important thing that we need to look at. Now, it says that he set the image up, the dedication of the image, the height of which was 60 cubits uh, and uh, 6 cubits wide, which, by the way, archaeologists have found the platform, so to speak, that this thing sat on, and it's in the middle of the plain of Dura. Now, Dura uh, basically means this. Uh, it's, a, it's just a, a wide-open plain. Most of the time, it's circular, and what they would do is they would call the troops in, and they would set them up, and they would arrange them in different ways, and the commander would come in the center and be able to look at all of his armies as they were set up. Uh, as the plain was set up, there would also be canyon or, or, canyon or cliffs on both sides and it would be down in the middle of all of it so it's a huge wide open expansive area where they can do the things that needed to be done well he says he set this up in the plain of dora not far from babylon or the province of babylon so it was close to the capital and it came in handy anytime they wanted to bring everybody together and have a big what to do so basically as you're looking at this thing it's a huge image i don't even know what that what's that what's that little thing over at knott's Berry farm that's parachute thing how, how high is that you think I don't know. You think it's 90 feet? Okay, good, thank you. About 90 feet. All right. So as you're driving down the 91 freeway, that thing kind of stands out, doesn't it? And uh, you can see it from pretty far away. Now, the point of this is this image is set up so that everyone everywhere can get a good look at it. Could you imagine how majestic this thing was? 90 feet tall, made of gold or overlaid with gold, and it would just be a fabulous sight to look at. And what's kind of fascinating by all of this is he sets this thing up and he dedicates this thing. Now, as we're looking through this, the image is an impressive sight, but is this. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 2, the king sent word to assemble. Some translations say summons. They were commanded to bring all of his official leaders together to this dedication ceremony of this image says that there were the satraps who were chief representatives of the king, the perfects who were military commanders, the governors who were civil administrators, the judges, uh, as we look at that, and advisors, uh, everybody that had anything to do with the kingdom, uh, all the rulers, the magistrates, everyone were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They all stood before this image that he had set up. They were organized. They were assembled. He wanted them in a certain way and in a certain manner. Had these, thing, had these people all assembled and set up and they all circled probably this particular image. That's a fascinating thought as you take a look at all this. They're all standing before this image dedicated to Nebuchadnezzar. Possibly and most probably it was an image of himself and they were swearing their allegiance to him. Man, there was a lot of political clout going on right then. But what was even more important was this. Not only was it a big political event, but more importantly, it had religious significance. We see the dedication of the image, but notice also in verse 4, there's a demand that this image be worshipped. Then the herald proclaimed, 
To you the command is given, O people, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kind of music, you are to fall down and you are to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Can you imagine? They were all called together. They weren't even, tell, they weren't even told why they were called together. It was only after they were assembled that all of a sudden the herald went and proclaimed what the purpose was for them being there. And the purpose was to bring all these people together and to worship a central image. They were all to fall down on their knees and worship. And it indicates that the image had religious as well as spirit, uh, political significance. And it's interesting as you go through this to understand that Nebuchadnezzar proposed to, proposed to establish a unified government. And also a unified religion. Universalism, again. Boy, do we see any rumblings of that in our culture, in our world today? If we can just learn to lay aside those things that separate our beliefs and our differences, and we can all come together and just believe one thing that would be common to all, that somehow or another we would have peace throughout the world. We need to lay aside what we believe and we need to come up with some type of common belief structure that everyone can agree we'll all believe and, and agree with that. It's interesting as you take a look at this because the officials that were summoned did, that were summoned to assemble didn't even know why they were getting together. Now I want you to think about this. Can you imagine the pressure to conform? Here you are. You're staring at this magnificent image, the sun probably glistening off of it as you see it shine throughout this, this whole uh, area. All the people of your kingdom are gathered together, all the officials that are there, the pomp and the circumstance and the ceremony that's there. And as they're all there and they speak different languages because it says the peoples and the nations in every tongue, so everyone in the kingdom is represented there and there's a language barrier. So what would happen is the, the, uh, the herald would go and he would announce it to one group who would then interpret it to their people and go and announce it to the next group who would interpret it to their people. And by the time they're done, all the interpretation is done. It's kind of like a meeting of the United Nations. And the bottom line of all of it is this. Hey, you know what? At the sound of the musical instrument and the symphony, you will kneel down and you will worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar or this new image that he has. And we, don't, and we know that it has nothing to do with Babylonian religion because he doesn't mention a god. It's something totally different and totally new to anything that they've ever been doing up to this point. Despite the pantheon of, of uh, gods that they all believed in, Nebuchadnezzar came up with a new idea and a new approach. We will all worship this image. Most possibly, it was an image of himself. A world leader. You will worship me. And you will fall down and you will worship me. And what's fascinating about all of that is this. You know, this was a great day for Nebuchadnezzar. And there was no question about what the alternative was for those who wouldn't do it. Look at verse 6. Whoever doesn't fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Isn't that fascinating? We know that the plain of Dura was also used for another purpose. It was the arena where criminals and political offenders were put to death. Jeremiah 29:22 documents the fact that the fiery furnace was typical Babylonian torture or execution. Now I want you to think about the pressure. You're told you're going to worship this image. Now also in the same plain of Dura, at another location close by, is a furnace that has been built for the purpose of executing those who disobey the command of the king. 
And they would have people come out, and it would be a big celebration. Anytime there was a dissident who would, who, who would disobey the king, they would all come out, and there would be a big ceremony, and they would watch him tossed into the top of this fiery furnace, and there was a door at the bottom so you could see inside, and there was a shelf that was there, and so they would go up to the top of the furnace, and they would drop people in, so they would drop down in the middle of the fire, and everybody could watch these people burning to death inside. Now I want you to stop and think about the pressure put on them. Okay? You are either going to worship this image which I just created, which is magnificent in and of itself, and all the people that are around there and the peer pressure to do the same thing to make sure you still keep your same job and your same position, or if you don't do it, oh, by the way, you smell that smoke? You see the fire jumping out the top? You see the alternatives that you have here? You're either going to worship or you're going to die. So choose wisely. So it's no wonder when the people heard the music, they all fell down and they began to worship. Now, what's interesting is this. And let me bring it to current culture so that we have some application for all of this. I would imagine this is 20 years after Daniel and his friends have been in a position of leadership. This is 20 years of demonstrating integrity in the midst of the people that are there. This is 20 years of holding fast and standing firm and believing what God has to say is to be true and to believe in their God, the God of Israel, the God of Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I would imagine in 20 years' time that they probably made an impact on a lot of people and there were a whole bunch of people that decided to worship the God of Daniel and his friends. I don't have any question about that. So as all these people are gathered and they're given this choice of either worshiping this idol or image or being thrown into the fiery furnace, I'm sure that there are many of them there. And, and what we've put in our context today, there are many there that were Christians. Many there that were believers. Many of them understood that, you know, the Ten Commandments, if nothing else, and they understood that, you know what, I'm a jealous God and you shall have no false gods before me. You shall make no graven image of any god, nor shall ever worship anyone but God, for I am God. And the greatest commandment is that we would love God and put Him first before everything else in life and that we would not have any false gods before us. That's commandment number one as it's laid out. And so basically they understood that. Now what's fascinating about this is this. There were probably a whole bunch of people there that believed in the God of Daniel and his friends, had come to faith in Him. Now they were all being subjected to the same test as far as their belief was concerned. And what's fascinating to me is this, as we'll find out, there were probably many of them who thought this. You know what? I can just kneel down on the outside, but I ain't kneeling down on the inside. Have you ever wrestled with that in your own life as far as your belief and what God says is right or wrong? I'll go along with it, but I'm not really going along with it. And then we begin to rationalize. After all, God wouldn't want me to lose my life over this little insignificant issue. He certainly wouldn't want me to lose my job over this issue. He wouldn't want me to lose friends over this issue you know, that's the same kind of sloppy thinking that we need to deal with and is dealt with in Daniel chapter 3. Understand this principle. If you don't understand anything else that I said today and you just leave with this one thought, it's this. God does not honor compromise. Take that one home. Nothing else today. Take that one home. Take it to work with you, take it to school with you, take it in your friendships, take it in your relationships, take it in uh, your date life, uh, take it to you know wh whatever and whatever you're doing during the course of a week. Take that one with you. And that's this. God never honors compromise. 
Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. Payday one day, baby. I mean, there comes a point in time where you either have to trust God or you don't. God doesn't honor compromise. And so as we take a look at all of this, it's fascinating when we see this, is that therefore at the time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, and all the people, nations, and men of every language, they fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They did it. They saw the alternative and they didn't like the choice. And unfortunately, many of us take what appears to be the easy way out. But let me just tell you from my own personal experience and what the Bible teaches, that's this. When we understand God and the Word of God, believing Him and doing what's right before Him is the easy way out. That is the easy way out. We never get out of situations when we compromise before God. And in fact, all it does is put us further and deeper into the situation. And it entangles us even more. Could you imagine the excitement that was going on here? Here's an example of physical prostration in worship with no spirit behind it. Here's why internationalism is so wrong. Here's why it's wrong for a government to mandate worship of God or any gods. See, God doesn't even mess with our freedom to choose whether we'll worship Him and submit ourselves to Him. God allows humanity a choice. God will never drag anybody into heaven into His presence. God allows you to choose whether you will fall down and worship Him. He allows you to choose whether you will accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He allows you to choose whether you believe Him or not. Nebuchadnezzar didn't even allow his people to make that choice. He said, you will worship me. And the alternative is, if you don't, you will die. He was wrong in doing that. He was prideful in doing that. Even Jesus Christ, when He spoke to the woman at the well, He said this to the Samaritan woman, you know, one day is coming when man will worship God in both spirit and in truth. And a loving God presents the alternatives and gives us the choice to decide what direction we want to go. Do you realize, according to the Bible, that there will be no one in hell that isn't there because they chose to be there? The choice they made was to reject the love and the forgiveness of God found in Jesus Christ. You know, the world always wants to blame God for everything. How could God send someone to hell? Hey, God's not sending anyone to hell. Hell was never even created for humanity. Hell was created for, the, for Satan and his demons. God doesn't want any, that any of us should perish. But he wants all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to go there. Do we understand that? The choice is ours. Where do you want to go? Nebuchadnezzar didn't even give these people a choice. Will you worship or not? I will make you worship. Worship is a natural outcry of a heart that's tasted the kindness and the goodness of God. I cannot help but worship God when I realize what He's done for me by sending Christ to die for me. I want to worship Him. I want to praise Him. He's not forcing me to. I can't thank Him enough because I know I was on the road to hell until He intervened and sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. Do you know that? Do you understand that? That you owe it all to God and all to Him we owe. Everything. And so as a result of that, I don't understand why it's so hard for, for men who, and women who have tasted the kindness of God to worship God and to praise Him for what He's done. God does not force anyone to worship Him. 
You can't manufacture it. You can't even make it emotional. Yeah, we can have all the singing. We can have the music. We can have all the backdrop. We can have all of that to try to make it more conducive to worship. And that's all good and it's all part of praising God. But you know what? But God is praised from the heart. There's a time coming when men and women will worship God in spirit and in truth. And what Nebuchadnezzar does and what religion does, it tries to counterfeit true worship. A true relationship with God. That's what he was trying to do. He was making everybody on the outside conform. But on the inside, there were people who were saying, hey, this guy's a nut. But the alternative was to get thrown in a fiery furnace, and I'm not nuts either. And so they struggled with their relationship with the true living God. And we're going to be introduced to a couple of guys, three guys next time, that the question that they had was, are we going to conform? And if we don't conform, are we going to die? And if we are going to die... Is God able to deliver us from what looks like certain death? If you're in a position today and you're wondering if God can deliver you, hey, let me tell you something, a little highlight from next week. God is more than adequately able to deliver us from any circumstance we find ourselves in today if we will turn to Him and we will trust Him and we will fall upon His mercy. God is more than able to deliver. And you'll see that next time if you come. If you don't come, read chapter 3 and uh, you can get some glimpse of it yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together again. Thank you for your word. God, we just pray that we can uh, realize the counterfeit of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That we'll be men and women who are not ashamed of the gospel. That we know that it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God, help us to understand that Christianity is separate from every other world religion and that we totally depend upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we just thank Him and praise Him for that, that He died in our place, that He rose again from the dead, demonstrating He had the power not only to forgive sin, but the power over death itself. That as we put our faith and trust in Him, we become children of God to those who believe in His name. God, help us to understand that that there'll be no one in hell that those who choose to go that direction for rebelling and rejecting the forgiveness of God found in Christ. I pray for those who today are here and listening to this that don't know the direction that they're going, that they would fall upon you and your mercy, that they would fall at your feet, and that they would believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. For your word tells us that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. God, and I also pray for each one of us who have fallen upon your mercy and have received your mercy and have received forgiveness and have become children of yours, that we would become not only just children of yours, but people that are convinced that your ways are right, that your ways are good, that we would trust you with all of our heart, and we wouldn't lean on our own understanding, and then all of our ways during the course of a week that we would acknowledge you so you will direct our paths and make them straight. God, help us to become men and women who no longer compromise in what are seemingly insignificant situations in life, but we'll see that every one of them are a test of our spiritual walk with you of our willingness to put you first and foremost, of our obedience to the greatest commandment that we would love our Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we'd put nobody and nothing before you. God, help us to see that we're at a crossroads every day and we have to make that decision. Help us understand that that decision is simply a matter of not compromising and that you're a God who does not honor compromise. God, you honor obedience. You tell us that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. That God, you, tell, you, you told uh, uh, your prophet that you demand obedience and not sacrifice. God, help us to be people who are committed to obeying you. 
And we just praise you for the results. And we praise you as you draw us closer to yourself in times of trial and tribulation. And that we see that you are a God who's more than able to deliver us from all circumstances in this life. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.